whoever climbs up to the second story to get the banana there, everybody gets shocked. So not just the one that climbs up to the second floor, but everybody gets shocked. So very quickly, the monkeys will start punishing newcomers that try to climb up to the second story because they don't want to get shocked. Hey, everyone. In this episode, I interview Han Zhang to hear about his experiences working for Neuralink. A couple things to note about the structure of the episode are one, the edits are made with the intent of improving the listener experience, and two, I think the questions become more and more interesting as the episode goes on, and I'm hoping that this will incentivize watching the entire way through. But if you're wanting to cheat the system, feel free to use the timestamps in the description. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Neuropod. Uh, For this week's episode, I'm really excited to have on Han Zeng. He's currently working at Seldom, uh, but he's a former Neuralink full-time employee uh, and was a microfabrication engineer. So I'm extremely excited to be having this conversation and interviewing him. I hope you guys are as well. So Han, do you mind introducing yourself a little bit and uh, just giving some background for the folks who are listening? Yeah. So I guess brief background. Uh, after graduation, I moved to the Bay Area and uh, started uh, working for a company called Neuralink, um, which I'm sure your uh, audience knows about. Um, there I worked as a microfabrication engineer uh, or on the microfabrication team, but sort of as a mixed background engineer. I did some mechanical engineering, some electrical engineering, um, ran some experiments and also some microfabrication as well. Uh, and then after that, I moved on to a smaller startup company, uh, one that came out of the Alumna Accelerator. That company's name is Seldom, and that's where I currently work. Um, and there I do uh, similar skills, but for different applications. Um, I build uh, instruments and robotic systems for them. Uh, so very much still a mix of mechanical and electrical and software engineering. And then I can delve into uh, my background before then as well. Yeah, uh, like a little bit of your um, involvement and your education at UBC. Yeah, sounds good. So back uh, when I was in school, I went to the University of British Columbia and uh, there I studied engineering physics. Um, so this is sort of like a, a mixed program in the sense that uh, it covers many different disciplines, uh, physics, math, mechanical engineering, and electrical engineering, sort of are the four major components of it. Um, and I did the mechatronics specialization and then also minored in uh, mathematics. So that's sort of what I studied in university and then extracurricular activities. Back then, I helped run the... Um, UBC Mars Colony Engineering Team also did uh, some international research opportunities uh, in Germany, Singapore, um, and then helped also uh, mentor inter- incoming international students to the UBC campus. That context is really nice and important to share because a lot of these steps, although they may seem like beginner steps, um, I think they're instrumental in number one, even just getting the job and then number two, like performing well in that job. Uh, So do you mind sharing like how you think those two are related and what you think are some of the most important things that you learn from those experiences are that translated to doing a full-time job at Neuralink? I think certainly the education is almost directly relevant because uh, in engineering physics, you you learn a lot about the fundamental physics concepts that directly apply to microfabrication. The mechanical engineering classes and electrical engineering classes sort of allow you to build tools uh, that serve those um, uh, purposes 
or goals that the microfabrication team is trying to achieve. Uh, so those are the directly applicable sort of uh, classroom concepts and theory and knowledge that led me to Neuralink. But then on top of that, the engineering physics program is sort of particular and special in that it has a lot of hands-on components. So it has three project, major project courses. One is this sort of second year robotics course uh, that goes through all summer. And then they also have two capstone projects. So it really, um, the program stresses not only a good sort of foundational theoretical understanding of scientific concepts, but also a lot of practiced experience with hands-on skills and applying that knowledge. Um, so that helped me gain a lot of relevant project experience and um, engineering experience, which Neuralink directly found useful. Like there were many times during the interview process where they asked me to elaborate on past project work and uh, they were curious about um, the past project work that I did. Neuralink is special in that it's it's a lot closer to a research organization than uh, an industry, sort of your typical industry startup company. Uh, it has sort of very long-term goals and that kind of makes it more like a research institute. And so a lot of the um, the skills and, and experience that I gained working in these uh, research institutes, building equipment for them, setting up experiments, running experiments, collecting data, and then and then inferring some sort of conclusion from that, that was also directly translatable to Neuralink. So that's sort of a, yeah, long-winded uh, explanation of how all that tied together to bring me to Neuralink. One thing that I really want to do with the podcast is just try to inspire young folks and bring awareness to the possibilities that are out there with biotechnology, and uh, basically showcase and demonstrate how much curiosity is needed in the space in order to make progress. It just feels like we know so little about the brain, but all these young folks that are potentially watching this or just going through school in some way, like I want them to realize, okay, there's all this stuff that the brain does, but there's still a lot that we don't know. And we're kind of like at a point where a lot of it is being discovered. Uh, so any words of inspiration or encouragement that you could provide for those young folks would be great. Firstly, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a lot that we are uncovering, but uh, still much more space to go. I think there's like comparisons where like if, if all of the knowledge uh, uh, surrounding the human brain is like a mile long strip, we would only have covered the first few inches of it. So there's a lot more work to be done, but uh, just from what we know, right, about the brain, there's already so many uh, different uh, potential applications. Um, and, and Neuralink is just one company that, that's working on uh, these sort of applications, right? The ability to restore uh, certain functionalities to people that are disabled or have, have uh, experienced strokes or other sorts of uh, um, damage to parts of their brain. Uh, restoring functionality and even enhancing um, functionality. These are sort of the two main areas that applications fall under. If you look at those sci-fi movies, uh, if you know about movies like The Matrix, these sort of um, futures actually aren't that impossible. Like they, they, a lot of the things that are presented in these sci-fi movies or shows like Black Mirror are in theory possible. And I think that that's something that's quite inspiring to me uh, is Imagine if you could take the information from the brain and 
move it outside of the brain into some digital format and use it to control things or uh, use it to keep a record of your thoughts um, or even compare it to other people's thoughts in, in a much more high fidelity manner. So meaning that your thoughts are translated. There, there's some loss of information when, when you transfer thoughts through words. There's not a perfect translation between my thoughts to words. Some people are better at explaining their thoughts than others. And then there's also not a perfect um, fidelity when my words are heard by the opposing party, the, the other person, because whatever information I'm trying to present, they may understand the word's definitions slightly differently than I do, or, or they may picture something different. Uh, we may picture something different when we say the same word. So there's some loss of information there. And then you have to encode the verbal um, things that you hear into information in your brain. So that sort of uh, chain process um, and, and the losses along, the, along that chain uh, make it so that verbal communication is actually inferior to many of the other potential forms of communication if you start to you know, really dive into biotechnology, especially like neurotechnology and neuroengineering. There's a lot of exciting things that can be done today by pairing our capacities in digital technologies and computation with uh, the human brain. Yeah, so, like <laughs> super exciting uh, how much is out there and yeah. just want, want more people to be exposed to it. Right. Um, okay, so I guess I'm curious about uh, just talking more about Neuralink and your experience there. So you started in November 2018. 18, yeah. And then worked there for about a year. Right. Um, can you explain what you did as a microfabrication engineer? When I was on the microfabrication team, I was uh, one of the more, I think, generalist backgrounds. Um, so my, my tasks varied quite widely. There was uh, some microfabrication processes that I actually ran myself. And then um, I also did like, chemical uh, experiments, so building fluidics baths and playing around with different uh, ways of um, metallization, forming sort of uh, metal connector interconnects between uh, the thin film electrodes and our uh, actual silicon chips that do processing, mechanical engineering of jigs, and then a lot of uh, PCB designs as well, and also flexible PCBs. Um, and then some associated software to, you know, automate these sort of experiments. Do you mind talking about the overall like pace of work at Neuralink and the exposure to leadership that you had while you were there? Pace of work very fast. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Neuralink, Neuralink moves quite fast. I think that's similar to um, Tesla as well. Like a lot of Elon's companies are known for being fast paced. Um, so one of the uh, traits that they look for in individuals is is mission oriented or mission first. So these are people that are very dedicated to the overall mission of the company, go getter type of attitudes, right? Like if a problem comes up, you you will find a way to overcome it or get around it. I think it also is a testament to the talent that the company has managed to collect. They have a lot of people that are able to, whenever they come up against a technical challenge, have the creativity and the flexibility and the resourcefulness and the tenacity to um, assemble resources to overcome that challenge. It's not like destructively fast-paced where we're just like recklessly, you know, breaking things, move fast and break things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, uh, that slogan doesn't really apply I would say at Neuralink, that slogan is very much a software company slogan. A software company, 
a, a mistake in your own code can be usually fixed. You know, you can run it, you can compile it, run it, test it, and in the test suite, it fails. Okay, you've made a mistake somewhere. You can just go back and fix it. Uh, it's not really a high cost unless it actually rolls out. Uh, okay, then it's a high cost, but there's many steps before that. In mechanical engineering, if you send out a part for manufacturing and it has an error in it, you, you can't really fix that very easily. You have to probably redesign it and then send it out for manufacturing again. And that costs you know, a lot of money and then a lot of time as well in, in the manufacturer remanufacturing and then shipping it again. So the costliness of a single mistake is I think much higher as you move from software to hardware. And as a result, because Neuralink works on you know, not just hardware, but really uh, fine, fragile hardware. We're talking about like nanofabrication or microfabrication, like very thin film electrodes. The costliness of a single mistake can be very high. And therefore, despite Neuralink moving at a fast pace, it's also very, uh, especially in the microfabrication team, very meticulous um, and, and systematic in how it does its work. Did you see that progress or change throughout your time at Neuralink? Like, I, I guess like the day you left, did you feel like the work environment was substantially different from the day that you joined? In terms of the style of operation, the way we operated, that I think was fairly constant, um, at least within the microfabrication team. There was some team reorganizations, um, which is expected in a startup, but the microfabrication team, I think, was very consistent. It was very meticulous and systematic from the start when I was there, mainly due to the fact that like, if you make an error in microfabrication, uh, you, know, you send out, for example, a design, and you get like a mask for lithography. Uh, and, and you made some errors in there. If you didn't even realize there was an error and you made like a bunch of wafers on it and then it showed up at the very end, that whole process could take like a month and then you would have to redo everything. It's very important that you don't make uh, a mistake because that's a lot of time. Two months or one month even is a lot of time. I'm unfamiliar with what lithography is. This is where you use uh, light to write patterns onto usually some sort of material photoresist that is uh, on a silicon wafer. And the, the whole point is that you start off with like a blank slab of silicon, usually in the form of a disc, which is usually referred to as a wafer. And then you're trying to write little features that are on the order of, it depends on your application, but nanometers or microns in the case of uh, Neuralink trying to pattern these sort of features on, onto the silicon. And then you're going to, after writing the features, you're going to take away some of the silicon. There's really three things that you do in microfabrication, right? There's patterning where you write some sort of pattern and then there's uh, removal of uh, material, etching, and then there's adding material, uh, which is depositions. So you just do those sort of three steps in different orders and then um, you use different materials. And that's essentially how, in a nutshell, all of the microfabrication devices are, are made. It's just some combination of those three steps over and over again and with different materials. And so the lithography part is one way that you can pattern, um, you can write patterns onto silicon. Litho, I think means stone, graphy meaning write, so writing into stone, and you do this with light, uh, lasers, so that you can get very fine features because you can you know focus light down to nanometers today. I'm curious if the robot that would perform an implant surgery would also do some of this type of etching or, or any of these processes. So Neuralink's surgery robot is um, highly specialized for surgery. 
and and okay. that's basically that's the only thing it does. And when it comes to microfabrication, it's probably very similar to what other people would would use if they did microfabrication. So there's sort of an industry standard for what tools are used. A whole bunch of companies that make these sort of microfabrication machinery. Uh, they're in a lot of university clean rooms. They're in uh, a lot of actual silicon foundries. And it's pretty standard across industries. So, so Neuralink would likely use those. These wafers are being used uh, for the writing of information to the brain or reading of information to the brain or both? Both. There's sort of two different areas that microfabrication comes in. One is making those electrodes that go into the brain. So that would be used for reading and writing. That's uh, sort of what Neuralink does in-house because uh, those, those are very particular to Neuralink. But then there's also sort of uh, silicon chips, specialized silicon chips that Neuralink makes for data processing from the electrodes. There's sort of two microfabrication components. One is the silicon threads. The other is the actual chip that reads and processes and uh, cleans up information. And both of them are used in reading and writing. So can you remind me uh, some of the other things that you said you worked on? Microfabrication processes, building like just random rigs and and such uh, for some mechanical engineering uh, there. And then uh, PCBs, um, designing PCBs for experiments, test situations, and then fluidics uh, baths. Can you elaborate on the the printed cir- circuit boards and the fluidics? Because we make a lot of like electrical designs, right? Uh, and we want to, you know, test uh, what what's the signal quality from these electrodes, what kind of, you know, formulas work best, how long do they last? All of these are questions that we have to be able to answer about the electrodes that are that are made. The PCBs that I designed were to run through a whole bunch of uh, electrical tests on these electrodes, you know, testing their signal quality, uh, resistance, um, variation, stuff like that. And then the fluidics baths, that's, that was sort of uh, when we were exploring how to make interconnects between silicon chips and thin film electrodes. Uh, there was many paths and metallizing a certain material and that, that had to be done in a fluidics bath. And so, yeah, that was where I designed the uh, built fluidics bath and carried some experiments and quantified like how much metallization was happening uh, and how um, essentially the quality of the metallization on this material if, if this would be a suitable interconnect between the silicon chip and the electrodes. My instinct is that Neuralink generally has, the, the, the biggest challenge that engineers and Neuralink has is, is centered around material science. Uh, yeah. Do you think that's like the number one issue or number one like science or engineering yeah. related problems that they have? There are sort of like, a whole bunch of problems where like any one of them would make this technology not work. So in that sense, they are all uh, in the same tier of like, if this doesn't get solved, this whole thing doesn't work. For the robotics team, how to get robots to very precisely uh, um, move to a target on the brain and insert an electrode because the brain is not a still object. The brain actually pulsates a little bit as you breathe being able to, in real time, detect the movement of the surface of the brain and compensate for that and being able to insert electrode, that's something that's certainly a challenge. Adjacent challenge to that would be being able to spot blood vessels in the brain and 
avoid those, obviously. You don't want to puncture uh, one of those if you're inserting an electrode. On the electrical engineering side, you're moving a lot of information, right? So, so you're reading from thousands of electrodes. Depending on the design, it could be tens of thousands of electrodes uh, or, or more. If you're reading from that many electrodes um, and you, you want this device to sort of be compact and sit on someone's head, you're going to have to come up with a very clever silicon chip to be able to process that information, digitize it, because it comes as analog signals from the electrodes, digitize it, uh, and not be very um, power hungry. Uh, mm -hmm. Because if you are very power hungry, it's going to heat up that local region of the brain. And at, at best, it'll be uncomfortable. And at worst, it could actually cook tissue. So that's Mm. Uh, you know, a problem. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, a, an actual problem we've run into. I'm just saying sure. this is in general something that you have to be cognizant of pretty much on any domain, uh, any, any team or uh, domain that Neuralink touches on, there's big challenges in, in, in those uh, domains. And so, yeah, going back to microfabrication, material science. Yeah. Like you say, you know, different materials have conductivity issues, um, stress and strain issues. You want these things to be flexible, so you're bending it. So you have to make sure that you choose materials that won't, for example, um, over time, if you bend it too many times or if it, if it moves back and forth, it hardens more or uh, mm -hmm. it, it just breaks. Um, so you don't want something super brittle. Uh, you have to worry about things like corrosion because there's a lot of uh, different chemicals floating around in, in the brain. Um, you know, you have uh, ions, you have proteins, you have like a whole bunch of different things. And you have to be, your material that your electrodes are made out of has to be able to survive in that environment for uh, years. And um, not only survive, but also carry the same signal quality uh, through all that time. You don't want it to drift. So it, it can't, not, not only does it have to survive, it has to re remain relatively constant in form factor and uh, uh, electrical properties. And then at the same time, it has to be feasible to manufacture. So that also cuts down on the number of options. Uh, and then also um, not only feasible to manufacture, but it has to work well, play nicely with the surgery robot, uh, right? So, so you're sort of constrained there with like the types of designs that you can do that a robot can inter interface with because it's not a surgeon that will be peeling these electrodes and sticking them in the brain they're, they're too small and and obviously you want to automate this eventually so you have to design it in a way that a robot can you know actually manipulate it physically uh so yeah those are big challenges there and then uh, uh on the software side right you get all this data stream from the brain it just looks like a bunch of uh i don't know if you've ever looked at these like neural recordings but it just looks like a whole many many channels of like almost a flat line but there's like clearly something happening there like little spikes here and there so how do you then make sense of that information first off you have to be able to take this raw data stream and be able to even be able to pick out when a neuron is firing and that's already harder than one might expect because you know if you see what looks like a spike how do you know that that's a spike versus um your electrode just being degraded during surgery, for example, during implantation, maybe it was stretched too much or damaged in some way. How do you know that that's not a signal issue or a noise issue rather than an actual genuine spike? So you have to have some software to be able to decide on that. And then after you, you decide it's a spike, how do you know that this is one spike from a nearby neuron versus like many spikes happening in the general background vicinity of the brain? Uh, so again, none of the things I'm saying are 
you know, necessarily challenges that Neuralink is facing. I'm just saying that these are general things that are challenges when you're attempting something like a BMI. After you pick out what are spikes, then is the real hard problem, which is like, what do these spikes mean? How do you make uh, meaningful information out of just random spikes on 3000 channels? Like, what does a single neuron firing really even mean? It doesn't necessarily mean anything in and of itself. It's really uh, the combinations of neurons firing that really gives you a lot more information. So using um, machine learning algorithms and stuff like that to be able to decode meaning from trains of uh, neural data, that's, that's also a huge challenge. And then that's only the engineering side, right? Then there's the biology side. The brain has like immune response system, it has a uh, scarring uh, effects. Um, it's an organ. It's not really meant to have things implanted into it. All of these uh, things produce a lot of challenges with like, for example, if scar tissue forms, then uh, the live neurons get pushed away from the site of implantation. Um, potentially that could cause signal issues, immune responses, or you may have weird uh, things caking onto your electrode. Uh, you know, I'm just throwing things out there that could be potential challenges. You know, obviously surgery is not, not a trivial thing to do. So you have to make sure that you, you, you do that part right and not cause substantial risk to any patient that might be undergoing the surgery. So I guess in summary, like the, the, huge challenges ahead and and some that they're currently like working through a lot of the ones that i mentioned they've actually already addressed and are no longer uh serious challenges but um i bring it up because it's it's you know something to to think about uh, just to illustrate how monumental of a of a challenge neuralink is even attempting neuralink is one of those companies that is working on something that has challenges on so many different fronts any one of those challenges not working can scrap torpedo the whole idea this is really quite a feat like if they pull this off um it, it would be quite a accomplishment um because of of just the not not only the quantity but also the magnitude of, of the challenges that they're facing can you explain the specific difference between the electrodes the threads and the channels a thread looks like it's like a single polymer thing that you can't really separate and within a, a thread there are many electrodes so th there are many sort of independent electrical paths within a single polymer thread so one thread will carry many electrodes there's many electrical pathways along that thread and they terminate at different lengths along the thread which means when that thread is implanted into the brain those electrodes will sit at different depths in the brain and so they will be hopefully reading from different neurons. So that's the difference between thread and electrode. And then typically uh, what we call a channel is like basically correlates to one electrode. So we read from all of the electrode sites. And so each uh, channel is just one reading, one signal train from one electrode. Gotcha. And each of those channels is read and write capable. There are ones that are read and write capable and there are ones that are read capable. The eventual goal is to have both working. If you had to describe what Neuralink's end product or service is, how would you describe what it is? I think that there's like the super long-term goal, being able to uh, digitize human consciousness, um, being able to control anything digital with your thoughts. I think in the sort of shorter term, 
you know, next five, 10, sort of 20 years, that, that sort of uh, time frame uh, in our lifetimes, I guess, uh, for sure in our lifetimes, I think we will see products that enable people who might have lost some functionality in the brain to be able to recover those lost functionalities and to be able to control computers, other sort of digital devices with their thoughts directly through the brain and do that relatively well, like com comparatively to a fully functioning adult or even better. Do you think yeah. it's possible that in the future, Neuralink or some other company comes up with a way to use the information that they've been receiving to basically, basically like train a neural net to eventually create like an artificial brain? Just talking about BMI, brain machine interfaces in general, I definitely think personally, it's my personal opinion, that that is the way that things will go where we start making artificial brains. If you can digitize thoughts and if you can record information, let's just say we get to the point where we're able to record information from all parts of the brain with very high fidelity. We can uh, basically map meaning and thoughts uh, from the brain with very high accuracy, right? It's very natural for me to imagine the next step being just building artificial brains um, and, and uh, general intelligences that are based off of human brains. You might be making it from scratch, or you may even just be copying over someone's consciousness into a digital format. I think both of those are, are possibilities in the future. Um, and I think that that's probably where BMI in general, like the whole industry, not Neuralink in particular, necessarily, but the industry in particular will definitely be headed in that way. And which which companies end up doing this? It may be a company that doesn't even exist today, uh, but it also mm -hmm. may, might also be Neuralink or, or some other company in that space. It's fascinating to me, like how much the brain is able to do with such little energy versus like the world's biggest supercomputer or whatever. Yeah. Requires tons of energy. Yeah, the brain is definitely a very fascinating uh, object. Um, who is it that said it's like the most informationally dense uh, thing in the known universe? Um, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. But uh, but but yeah, it, it is very impressive. Uh, that's why we study it. And the the question really that I have in my mind that I, I'm not sure what the answer to this is is like, can you ever get to something that is um, informationally more dense or compact electronically, digitally compared to the brain. Uh, and would that ever be more energy efficient than the brain? Um, like not, not necessarily the human brain, but basically the question is like, uh, suppose you had a set of organic chemicals to play with and then another set of like silicon and metal atoms to play with and you tried making brains out of these two Lego sets, uh, which Lego set at the end of the day would produce the most energy efficient computational device, which one can produce the most informationally dense, and then uh, which one can produce um, the best brain off of a combination of those two metrics, information dense and also energy efficient. And I'm not really sure uh, personally which one of the two it would be, if it would be a biological system or, um, a silicon metal sort of system. With Neuralink, like they're, the information that's being uh, moved around in the brain is through electric signals and chemical signals too, yeah. right? right. Uh, so how do you foresee like future interactions with medical like drugs with the physical 
like electrical signals being read and written from the brain with Neuralink. I think that Neuralink is probably not going to be doing anything on the drug side of things. Maybe they will. I'm not sure. Um, the future is very much, you know, dependent on uh, progress the company makes, and and it has a very large exploratory arm. Um, there's a lot of things that are very research-like in, in Neuralink, so very exploratory. We know there are things, that's, that's what it means to take drugs, right? Like colloquially, there are drugs and chemicals that will affect the way the brain works, and some of them are therapeutic. Um, and so I think more and more, you're going to see an industry pop up around uh, drug therapies to address um, mental health issues, mental disorders, uh, other sorts of irregularities uh, with brain function, that should be getting more and more sophisticated because um, right now, okay, for example, um, painkillers, right? You just take a bunch of painkillers and you just flood your brain with opiates and um, that, that's how you kill the pain sensors. But um, perhaps there's a better way of doing that without triggering the addiction pathway in the brain. Um, so I, I would I would expect drugs in the future to be much more sophisticated and be able to do certain things without triggering a whole bunch of negative side effects. So at the end of the 2020 update event, uh, they did like a roundtable in the room. Um, they asked the same question of everybody, like, what's the thing you're most excited about for Neuralink working on in the future? Um, what, what would be your thing? I think for me, it would probably be the ability to digitize the brain. So just upload my consciousness or, or some sort of digital equivalent to my brain onto the cloud and then be able to, <laughs> in, a, in a sense, free myself from this biological body. Not that I have any problems with my particular body, but uh, the, the ability to like download my consciousness into any particular body anywhere is, is something that is really amazing like inspiring uh, as an idea, right? The ability to say, if I wanted to uh, download myself into a drone and fly around or uh, a submarine and swim around, or if I wanted to visit uh, Mount Everest and climb to the peak, rather than doing that in a human body, just literally port myself over to some stationary fixed robot planted on the peak of Mount Everest and just like look around or live stream, um, uh, people's thoughts and, and, and experiences directly to my consciousness um, from wherever they are in the world. Freedom from the biological form is, uh, I think, probably what I'm most looking forward to. But this is like way in the future. That's a cool answer. <laughs> um, yeah. And then there's other cool things like human hive minds, for example, that can come about. So that's a whole another thing as well. Um, mm -hmm. That would be very interesting. These sort of super organisms that can form once you allow like an internet or a network of human brains. Yeah. 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 It'd be cool to like have all of them basically connected in some way or another. Yeah. Basically. And, and I, you know, it gets, it gets dystopian very fast because it's like, well, there's sort of emergent phenomena when you, when you connect things, right. There's like, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this experiment where like um, they have like four chimps and then, or four monkeys. And then like, yeah, uh, if, if a monkey goes up into a second, there's like a two-story environment. And if they climb up to the second story to get a banana there, they get shocked. And, uh, if, if they get a banana on the first floor, everything's fine. They slowly replace these monkeys one by one, 
whoever climbs up to the second story to get the banana there, everybody gets shocked. So not just the one that climbs up to the second floor, but everybody gets shocked. So very quickly, the monkeys will start punishing newcomers that try to climb up to the second story because they don't want to get shocked. And eventually, when you replace all four monkeys one at a time, uh, so that there's some ability for the other three to teach the newcomer not to do that. When you replaced all four original monkeys and you take away the shock mechanism, they still punish every monkey from going to the second floor, even though there's no cost to it anymore. So these sort of like network effects um, that, that happen from different uh, independent agents enforcing, uh, inflicting punishment or reward on each other in an environment of imperfect information and assumptions uh, there can be a lot of emergent phenomena that are very dystopian, very unexpected, and very persistent that have nothing to do with truth or anyone's individual beliefs. Uh, there's, there's a lot of very interesting, both potentially very dangerous and potentially very uh, rewarding things, uh, I think, in the future for mm -hmm. BMI. Yeah, that, that story like perfectly illustrates my <laughs> point. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for having this conversation. Uh, I'm sure like everybody's looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for doing this. And hopefully we can talk again sometime soon. Yeah. Looking forward to it. All yeah, right. Thanks, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, hit the bell notification icon and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Medium for updates and highlight clips. Hope to see you at the next episode. <laughs>